You know what we say? We're never too young to think about aging. Join us for this Zoom Catcher's special presentation, Conversations on Aging, the podcast. We'll be talking with industry experts on engaging issues. Whether it's science and technology, Medicare fraud, elder care, or justice, we got you covered. 2030 is quickly approaching. Will it be the golden years or the silver tsunami? Stay tuned and find out. We're all stakeholders. Let's learn and age together. Remember to subscribe to our Zoom Catchers YouTube channel and follow us on our socials. Greetings and welcome to this special conversation on aging. You know what we say, we're never too young to think about aging. I'm your host, Kimberly Gunn with Zoom Catchers, and we are super excited to bring you episode four, Envisioning the Future of Elder Care and Healthy Aging. We have been so fortunate with our podcast to have amazing guests, and we have another amazing guest today. Her CV is super long. I'm gonna give you the highlights and she's gonna break it down and give us some more details about who she is And today we are proud to have on our show, Jennifer Lieberman. She is a strategic innovation leader, community builder, and facilitator. Her superpower is aligning disparate groups around a shared purpose and vision, often exploring the future of various topics. She founded a consulting practice in 2023 to apply her experience as a healthcare innovation leader, driving large-scale change, to help organizations define new futures, engage stakeholders, and build programs for results. Jennifer founded and led Kaiser Permanente's Garfield Innovation Center, a global model for visioning the future of health and enabling people to prototype and test new ideas. Her work explored the future of digital health and the role of social determinants of health, including food insecurity, economic development, and community building. Jennifer writes and speaks about how to create cultures of psychological safety that support innovation. She also holds an MBA and MPH from UC Berkeley. I am so super excited to bring Jennifer into the Zoom Catchers studio. Jennifer, how are you doing today? Thanks, Kimberly. I'm doing really well, and I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I am super excited too. I've had a, a, a cup and a half of coffee, so I've got some energy to, to back it up. This conversation is so important and I know it will resonate with so many people out there. So please tell us more about yourself and in particular, how did you get into the healthcare space? Yeah, well, I, I know you wanted to hear about how this happened. I, I guess it wasn't a surprise that I ended up in, in healthcare. My mother was an epidemiologist and I grew up in San Francisco in the 80s, in the middle of the AIDS and HIV epidemic. And I think my career, it has always been clear to me I wanted to be in healthcare, but I've had a number of different places. And and really early in my career, I focused at a really high level on healthcare policy and all the changes in the healthcare system that had such an impact on how we train health professionals to practice in teams because that's how healthcare is delivered. And it was great working in policy, but I really, after graduate school, I really wanted to to work for an organization that was really 
making a difference. And so I founded Kaiser Permanente's Innovation Center, which was super exciting. We did just some absolutely amazing work. And since I've left uh, Kaiser Permanente and have been a consultant, I've really wanted to focus more on health rather than healthcare and have been doing quite a bit of work in the food insecurity space, both globally and domestically. Awesome. Awesome. There you have it, folks. She has been uh, in the trenches in, in this field, and we are so appreciative that you're on to help us explore this topic. And I really want to dive into the topic, envisioning the future of elder care and healthy aging. We've been able to uh, talk offline uh, about this topic. I've learned more about you and your personal experiences. So can you just tell us more about how your personal experiences have uh, given you insight into this topic uh, in general? Yeah, I mean, I think today I will try to put on three hats, if you will. I mean, obviously I have this healthcare background, but I've also had a lot of personal experience as a caregiver, as the daughter of someone with dementia. But then also, hopefully I can speak personally as well. So my father was diagnosed at 64 with early onset dementia. And at the time I was in my thirties and had an eight year journey with my father as a caregiver, not in my home, but it was a pretty significant part of my life. And it was a time when I started having kids and was really part of that sandwich generation. And there were, there were a number of things because I was both working in the healthcare field and I was experiencing this journey as a caregiver. And there were I think three elements of that that are worth telling a little bit more about. I think the first one was that when you get a diagnosis like this, there is so much that you need that is outside the formal healthcare system. And those connections are really hard to make. Uh, you know, we had to navigate things like a role change and what that meant emotionally to go from being a daughter to almost reversing roles as, as the parent and, you know, how we dealt with really tricky conversations, like when it was no longer appropriate for my father to drive, or when we came to the point where we could no longer have him in my stepmother's home and he needed more care than we could provide. Navigating those conversations was so a part of our journey, and yet it was like this much of the healthcare system. And I think that was a real challenge. I think the other thing that really struck me was this was an experience about our family. It was about how my stepmother supported my father and how I supported my father. I was an only child. But the healthcare system, their interaction was just with my father. And it was at every turn, all of these decisions were being made, especially further on as, as my father's dementia progressed and he was even nonverbal. Those conversations and decisions were being made by myself and my stepmother. And yet the whole system was designed 
to support my father. So I'll give you a great example. My father would go in uh, for a visit and I was working full time, right? So I, I couldn't come to all of these and I would be put on the phone, which was which was terrific to, to do, but it was so hard to participate in that conversation fully. And there are so many technologies that exist now. Video is a great one where I could have been a lot more involved in those conversations. So this idea of like, Engaging the entire caregiving team is so important and and something that I just firsthand experience not having. And then the the third thing, Kimberly, and this is this is so hard. I think something like ninety percent of Americans want to have a conversation about end of life, and only about a quarter of them do. And that's what played out in in my family. Right. It was not until the very end when we were having these conversations. And my experience was that the healthcare team kind of tiptoed around us. And at the very end, when we signaled, yes, we need to talk about this, I felt a sense of relief on their part. But I was also thinking, like, why didn't we have this conversation years ago? It would have, it would have done so many beautiful things in this situation. So I learned a lot in that process. And because I was so young, because I was in my 30s when this happened, I have taken it upon myself that every friend that I know that is now going through having to care for a parent with dementia, I, I feel like I, I really owe it to them to talk about my experience and what I would do differently if I were to go back. Thank you so much for for sharing that because based on our offline conversation, I, I knew that about know that about you and and that topic resonates with me as well because I was a, a caregiver for my aunt who also was suffering from dementia and had to navigate that as a family, my partner and the healthcare system. And so I appreciate you sharing that. And I know that there's millions of people out there that have gone through similar experiences. So based on those experiences, and I know you want to, we're going to explore the topic of shifting from a patient-centered healthcare system to more of a caregiver approach or finding ways to better support or more fully support the caregiver. What can you draw from your personal experience, the experiences that you may be hearing from friends and family? How can we shift that that focus or make it more of a family-oriented, a caregiver-oriented experience? How do you engage on those topics, uh, remove some of that taboo around end of life and death so that we can continue to travail this topic where it's not fraught with so much anxiety and stress? It's already a stressful, anxious situation. What would you recommend as, as far as moving in that direction? Yeah. Yeah. I have so many thoughts. I, I think on the first one, the healthcare system tends to want to medicalize things. And what, especially at the beginning of whatever diagnosis, caregiving journey you're on, I think just having peers to talk to about what it's like, I would have benefited so much from talking to someone in my situation in my community about the resources that existed. And what was given to me was, 
oh, hey, there's a, you know, there's a, a caregiver support group that meets at two o'clock uh, in San Francisco on a Tuesday, right? And, you know, I was working full time in the East Bay and, you know, um, so I think this whole idea of like connecting other people who have been there and, and healthcare is so local with resources, that would have been terrific. There had been some kind of a navigator to help me and my family figure out how to how to connect in with different things. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a part of the healthcare system, but a better handoff to a lot of those community resources. You know, I also just think we have a lot of existing technology that can bring families into the picture more. And I think acknowledging and recognizing that, you know, if you go, if you have to take a family member to an inpatient visit, why can't we have video to pipe in family members? And, and in many cases, that could be adult children that are spread across the country. I just, there are ways to solve for that problem. And it's, it's really a mindset that, that needs to, that needs to shift on on those two elements, I think there are some pretty clear fixes. On the end of life piece, I think this is something that we we need to start ourselves. Like 90% of the country folks want to talk about end of life and they just don't end up doing it. And I think, Kimberly, this is where folks like you and I need to just start, right? Like all of us are aging. It is not easy to get off this planet gracefully. And so I think all of us can begin having these conversations with our own loved ones. I think there's this tendency, and I saw it when I was at Kaiser Permanente, and we would, we would engage what we thought were seniors to talk about concepts. And instead of having them resonate for themselves, a lot of people in their 70s would say, oh, that's great for my mom in her 90s, right? Right. So like there are wonderful games. There's a there's a deck of cards called Hello that used to be called My Gift of Grace. And and it's like a very accessible way to start talking about things that are are meaningful and valuable. And I think Kimberly, rather than you and I asking other people to start this conversation, I think we have to start this conversation ourselves with our own families our own friends to just normalize and and destigmatize this and my own kids that are gen z like they're all over this right like i think it's a conversation we can and we just need to have mm-hmm. so th- those are my thoughts i i love it and i and i agree and i think that We've been fortunate to have other guests on the show to discuss this very issue, end of life and the conversations. And I think it's just hard. And I think for for our culture in particular, you know, we have a very youth oriented culture. So people aren't end of life. What, please? Old age, please don't talk about it. There's, I think there's like a natural kind of fear or pulling back or drawing away from the topic. And for me as a caregiver from my aunt, it was, it was a, there were a lot of positives and there were a lot of blessings in disguise. And one of them, it got me thinking about my own life and my own death and my own end of life. 
And I started to have those conversations with partners and families. And these are things I want. And I don't want this. And what do you think? And, and the more I talk about it, the less fearful I am. And I think that's one of my messages I want to put out there to people. It's like, talk about it. The earth isn't going to open up and swallow you by having this conversation, right? Like nothing, nothing weird is really going to happen. You're going to, you know, pick up and life is going to move on. But what do you think it is that prevents people from even engaging the topic? Fear? Is it something we're just not used to? And, and how do you think we can, what other things can we do to begin to integrate it more into our regular conversations and, and being? It's such a good question, Kimberly. I, I think part of it is fear. And I think if you start these conversations later in life, it's a lot more difficult than if you start them in your 30s and, and 40s. And I think if you begin those conversations earlier, there's a lot more runway, right? And they can even be around like, hey, I'm, what happens if I'm hit by a bus, right? So I think just starting earlier rather than later and, and normalizing them is is the best that that we can do but it would be super interesting for you to have a guest that that focuses in on that area because there are a lot of people who do think quite deeply about end of life and and some of those folks there's been a proliferation in the past 10 years around games and ways to make these conversations just part of life and and there has even been peer reviewed research that has looked into the effectiveness of these games. I'm not an expert in this area, but there are people who are, and that would just be a fascinating conversation. So when when you get that guest on your show, I, I wanna listen in. Absolutely, because when you said that, my ears really perked up because I was like, wow. And, and I taught um, in public schools for a while, for a couple of years, and you know we did a lot of gaming, and especially nowadays with kids coming around, gaming is such an important part, even adults. And it's like, what an idea to gamify, gamification of the conversations on aging. I, I love it. I think it's great. I think anything you, anything we can do to make things fun and interesting, I'm all for it. And, you know, to get back to what you're saying, the two of us having a conversation and think about envisioning the future for my elder care and healthy aging, you know, I've given it some thought and I know I want people around me who are supporting me. I know I want uh, caregivers who are engaged in this topic and who understand my needs and their needs. And I know that I want to be in a healthcare system or a part of a healthcare system that is supportive of me and a community. So I, I've given it some thought. I've talked about it. I, I've done research. And what about yourself? What sort of vision do you have for your own end of life and that, that level of care for yourself? It's interesting that you ask that because I think my experience has been when you see an end of life that you don't want to repeat, you're just a lot more focused on making sure that that doesn't happen to your own family. And so being able to die at home, I think, is really important and and not being a, a burden uh, to my kids or spouse is incredibly important to me. So it's a good reminder that I myself need to have more of these explicit conversations. Sometimes you think 
just because you've got the thought doesn't necessarily mean that that the folks around you know what know what that is. Mm-hmm. And it's like you said, it, like we've been talking about, it's not something that uh, a lot of people talk about. Certainly don't want to wake up every day. I wonder, you know, my, about my end of life. But I think based on my research and talking to other people, unfortunately, a lot of people end up at that place where they wish they had been thinking about it. And here they are no longer maybe in a physical or mental or emotional space to think through those things. And so therefore people are now scrambling, trying to make it happen for them. And we don't know. It's like, I don't know what aunt Sally wants. She never said it to me. And then you're dealing with family dynamics. Some people want this for Aunt Sally. XYZ person doesn't want that for Aunt Sally. With our family and our aunt, we were fortunate in that she had given it a lot of thought years ago. So we were just um, executing her wishes. And we were um, so, so grateful that she had done that, made it really clear verbally and and, in writing. And so I can't stress enough for people to start to really make it clear and write it down and think about it so that your loved ones aren't left scrambling and fighting over, you know, we want to keep Aunt Sally at home. She wants to go here. Clarification would really help. And Did you have a similar experience with your family? You know, I don't think we spent enough time talking early on about what, what really mattered, especially when my father was first diagnosed. And I think especially with dementia, that's tough because, you know, there, there's a window. So if, if I would do it over again, I would probably have some more explicit conversations really, really early on. What would you recommend though, as far as having conversations with younger people, teens, children, how would you suggest we, we approach it with our, our loved ones, maybe friends, family that are not necessarily in their thirties and forties, but teens and younger? Yeah, it's such a good question, Kimberly. The honest answer is, I think there actually is quite a bit of knowledge in this space. And I'm not sure that I'm, I, you know, I know how to answer it, but I do know that there are people who do know how to answer it. And I think there's a whole body of work around life care planning where there are different conversations that are appropriate at different stages. And that would be something that would be super interesting to explore with with a real expert in that space. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I'm going to put it out there. If there are people out there watching who uh, have some expertise, deeper knowledge on that topic, shoot us an email. We'd love to have you on and so we can explore that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. We're here with Jennifer Lieberman discussing envisioning the future of elder care and healthy aging. I want to shift the conversation to uh, talk about some topics that I know that you have been exploring professionally, and that is issues around food insecurity, social connectivity, and uh, social determinants of, of health. And I know that those are buzzwords, you know, out there, but tell us more about those issues and how they're, I know they're kind of becoming more prominent vernacular these days. Yeah. Yeah. No, Kimberly, thanks for the pivot. You know, I think often we think of of healthcare and, and we talk about the sick care system. And I think there has been a recognition in the healthcare industry over the past 10 plus years that all of the things that you rattled off, those are 
that's social care or the social determinants of health. And the healthcare system, I think, has gotten a lot wiser about the fact that your, your zip code is a greater predictor of your health than your genetic code. And that all of those community factors really play a huge, a huge role in, in your physical health. From the community perspective, um, that's the work that a lot of community-based organizations have been doing forever. So it depends on, it, it really depends on your perspective. There are some exciting shifts that are happening. So CMS, which is the, the government agency that regulates the two big public health insurance programs, Medicare and Medicaid, they've just put in a new rule that at the beginning of 2024, healthcare providers are going to need to screen for the social determinants of health. And that is a step in the right direction. It is not that those healthcare providers are required to address the social determinants of health, but at least screen. And that, that is a first step. There's, there's still a ways to go. So I think there's a greater recognition of this, and that's terrific. I, I think another element that is getting a lot of attention right now, and, and I am I'm so fascinated by this, is the, the focus on loneliness and social isolation. Um, so the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, just released a report this year, it was like 81 pages, on the impacts of social isolation. And social isolation not just breaks people's hearts figuratively, but literally as well. And it is tied to increased risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease, dementia and depression. And when the Surgeon General says, like, I am more concerned about the impacts of social isolation than obesity. That is really something to pay attention to. I, I think I heard the statistic that social isolation is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So there's clearly a problem. And, and by the way, this is not just with seniors. In fact, I think young people are at even greater risk for social isolation than people later in their lives. But how we address social isolation, I think, is, is super interesting. It is the kind of thing that carries a lot of stigma. Just like those end-of-life conversations, who wants to talk or raise their hand, sign me up for a, a social isolation? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so when I was at Kaiser Permanente, we were looking at some super innovative programs to address this. And a lot of these kind of require what I call Trojan horse solutions, because you can't address the issue head on. You have to kind of back into it for something that is more accessible and, and has less stigma. And I think helping people contributing when, when seniors are able to volunteer and share their wisdom and help others, they are helping others, but they're also really helping themselves. So there are some super interesting models in, in many communities. There's a, an organization called Eldera AI, which is creating a, a virtual village to connect seniors and youth 
in a mentoring relationship where folks over 60 are sharing their wisdom in the world with youth. And again, I think this idea of it, it is much harder to receive than to give and models where we engage people in community service to help others. It's just, it's such a virtuous circle where we're helping everyone. And I'm, I'm super interested in a lot of those solutions. And it, it really sounds, you know, interesting what, what you're describing. And I think that, you know, as a, a citizen of this country and growing up in this society, so much has been, so much emphasis seems to be placed on being able to do it on your own and being an individual and, 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 and that's great for, for some things, but not so much when you're 90 and you're at home and all of a sudden there's no one around and those connections are not, not as strong as they used to be because friend, friends have passed and family's not close. So how do you envision, you know, moving more in that direction? Is it just a matter, not just, but is it one thing to just to get the word out and let people know these kinds of programs exist? Yeah, I mean... I think there are a lot of these programs that that do exist, I would say, both formally and informally. So there are a lot of super interesting elder village models. Some of them are physically, how do we bring seniors together? But there are virtual elder villages. Ashby Village in the East Bay is a great example where people opt into a network to help each other out. And these exist not just in the Bay Area, they exist nationally. There are a lot of these all over the country and lots of different models where people really commit to helping each other to to the point of when they can't anymore and, and build relationships and purpose and connection in the process of, of doing that. So I think there are those models. As, as I now have a kid in high school and I'm thinking about like, well, what's next? There are a lot of friends that are thinking about, well, where do I retire to? And there are all sorts of discussions on what are the best towns to retire to. But when I think about it, it's like, who's your community and network, right? Like the geographic place is, is always, of course, interesting, but who are your people? Like, what's your village? And I think having explicit conversations with people about what what matters to you and who your tribe is is just super important. Mhm. I I agree and I like we've been stressing it all starts with conversations so please folks go out there and start to have conversations about life, your future. You're we're not too young, we're never too young to really think about it. For young people who may be tuning in, Try to strike up a conversation with your family. Let them know that you're coming from a loving place. That people aren't scared and re recoil in fear. Because as we know, and I'm sure you know that, you know, the 2030s, that number is flashing yellow. There's going to be more of the population that are seniors. So we're all going to be called upon to step up and look after a family, friend, colleague. It's, it's just reality. The numbers are, are going to bear that out. And so the question is, how do we show up? And, and we talked about the idea of, of showing up and being present. And how, do, how do we tackle and navigate this situation, this life experience that we're, this journey that we're all on 
And you turned me on to to someone, Joan Halifax. And I just want to read a, a haiku because I think her haiku, this haiku that I found, really sums up a lot. We can move into the next phase of this conversation. And she writes, quietly trying to sort through the 10,000 things. And I think that's a perfect haiku for this entire situation. It's not one thing. It's not two things. There's a myriad of issues and topics and points that all need to be explored. I know that you have a lot of experience engaging stakeholders on these broad, large-scale topics. And I want to talk uh, more about some of your experience with Kaiser Permanente and break down some of the key points from your work with Kaiser Permanente Innovation Center. And I believe that they can be applied to this situation as well. Number one, there are no templated solutions. Number two, multifaceted systems are required to address them. Number three, solutions must scale to millions of members for true impact. And number four, movement making is required to transition ideas to reality. Well, let's um, explore that because I know with some of these topics, in particular this one, like I said, there's so many different angles. There's food insecurity, there's housing, there's end of life conversations. How can we apply some of those ideas uh, that you explored with, with KP to this situation? Yeah. So all of those challenges that you just rattled off are, they're part of complex adaptive systems. And they're, they're really, they're problems that you have to, to solve on a systems level. So like you can solve one part of the problem and then the problem itself may change, right? So we have to understand and tackle these problems at an individual level, at a community level, and then a lot of times at like an interconnected policy level. You see this with with climate change. There's individual action, but obviously there's policy level change that that needs to occur. And and the work that I've been doing with food and nutrition insecurity is very similar, right? Like there are programs that how do we just get individuals who are eligible enrolled in SNAP, which is what was formerly called food stamps, to supplement their, their purchasing power? There are other community-level solutions around getting folks connected into resources in the community and food banks and all sorts of supplemental programs. And then I think there's also just incredibly important work that needs to be done at the policy level, even asking like, how do we expand eligibility for SNAP? There are people who um, maybe should be covered uh, by this benefit. And how do we begin to have reimbursement for food as medicine, right? If we we know that food impacts health in, in very specific cases, how do we effectively lobby a number of different governmental programs to provide reimbursement. So I, I guess in short, none of these problems can be solved by a single actor in the system. And so ways that we can bring people together that come from very different perspectives is super important. I agree. I wanted to um, just explore the whole uh, idea of, of- Food as medicine. I know you're you're involved in that, or you've been engaged on that topic. 
And my comment about that is in, as a caregiver from my aunt, she was fortunate to be a part of the Meals on Wheels program. And she was able to get healthy, nutritious food for her. And I know it made a difference for her in the end of her life. And I know that nutrition in general is is a huge issue for elders. Some of them are living alone, so they're not able to provide for themselves nutritionally, or they're not in the space physically or emotionally. I know with her, just getting her to eat and getting her to even drink water was a, was a real issue. So it seems like just education is, is a key a component of that. But I'd love to hear more about um, the food as medicine. I think there's been a growing recognition. In fact, I, I would say we we recognize, right, that food contributes to better health outcomes. And I don't think we need to study that anymore. I think there are a couple shifts that are happening. One is we need to be talking more about nutrition security, where you're getting the proper type of food rather than just calories. And, and there's a shift, although there is not yet a clear definition of what nutrition security looks like. But there is also a struggle to find the resources to to pay for a lot of these services. And I think a lot of the conversation is how does the medical system show up and provide reimbursement for a lot of these programs? And that's beginning with a lot of pilot programs, but we're still just not there with clear, dedicated funding streams to pay for something that we know we see the benefit, right? Far better to invest in providing somebody with proper nutrition to avoid type 2 diabetes than to put someone on a medication that they have to take for the rest of their lives that's $1,000 a month, right? Like, it's very clear. And like a lot of things, we're just not there yet. But we definitely... We definitely started the conversation. And that's getting back to that last question, like this is where people have to come together. And last week I was involved in some super exciting work with food banks that are, are really coming together to, to understand food as medicine and, and their role. And I was incredibly impressed, right? They recognize that there's a whole language and a whole vocabulary with the healthcare system. And they spent quite a bit of time getting up to speed to understand the language of healthcare. They invited me to come participate and share from a healthcare perspective what that lens is. And so to the extent that organizations can recognize that they need to bring in partners and be cognizant of language and be cognizant of external perspectives and to actually seek them out. That's how we're going to solve these problems together. It's unfortunately not in isolation. It's not easy. It takes a lot of time, but that's how we're going to like really address these like super gnarly problems. You got to We got to show up everybody and we're all stakeholders. So if you don't think you're a stakeholder, <laughs> I uh, recommend you think again and think about it, not just from the perspective of a loved one, but yourself. What sort of future do you want to live in where you're an elder person in need of support, healthcare, food? Give it some thought now so that you can start planning and having these conversations. 
maybe there are some community organizations you can be a part of. Maybe you could reach out and have conversations with people like we're having today. And, and I just strongly suggest people just be proactive and take that step. It'll help all of us. Whatever step an individual takes, it helps all of us because we're all a part of the community. There are a lot of resources online. We'll have Jennifer's information as well if you want to reach out to her. And we are here with Jennifer Lieberman. We are discussing envisioning the future of elder care and healthy aging. And I do want to shift and talk about this whole idea of optimism. As you've indicated, in, and as I know, this topic is it's so broad. There's, there's a lot to do. It's certainly not easy. It's hard. We get that. But you, I know that you have considered yourself an impatient optimist. So tell us more about that idea because it's so intriguing and and I love it because I consider myself an optimist. So it's like, yeah, I'm tapping my foot though, folks. I'm saying let's yeah. let's move this, let's move this train forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my family would just tell you this is this is the way I'm wired. But uh, if you've never been to the Bill and Melinda Gates Discovery Center in Seattle, it's really worth a visit. And this is where I really learned about impatient optimists. And I thought, man, that's just spot on. Um, I'm an optimist just by who I am. And I think the impatient part is so important because particularly spending my entire career in healthcare. There are just a lot of folks that are risk averse. They want to study things more, whether that's out of fear or a desire to protect the status quo. I feel like unless we push, we're not going to make change. And there are so many things that need change. And part of this conversation that we're having is you keep asking me, Kimberly, what to do. And whether you're an individual or whether you're an organization, I think there's this tendency to say for these really hard things, like, oh, somebody else needs to do something. Like as soon as X, Y, Z, then our organization can do whatever. And I think we just have to get started, right? Like, do you want somebody else to shape your future? Or do you, in a world of a lot of uncertainty, want to define that future for yourself. And I, I think yeah. when we think of it in those terms, it is scary to get started, but we just have to. Whether it's me as an individual saying, gosh, maybe I need to have this conversation with my family, or me in an organization saying, hey, there's a complex challenge we need to solve. Are we going to wait for the federal government to give us advice, or are we going to get started defining what we need to see. If you go to the Gates Discovery Center in Seattle, they are tackling so many social issues. And what's so fascinating is that everything there, they're doing amazing work, Kimberly, especially around the role of women. There was an incredible exhibit last time I was there about like women holding the weight of the world. And yes, every interactive exhibit is about what you can do to get started in your community. And that's that's what we have to do. Absolutely. And I agree 100%. I love it. I think you're right. There's this tendency to tell me what to do and, and to reach out to people. And, and there's obviously a need for that, depending on what you're trying to do. But at the same time, what can you do as an individual? And 
in navigating this whole issue with, with my aunt, it was a lot of just my own. I had to read, I had to research, call people, write people, do all this, do all that. And I said, you know what, I'm going to start a podcast because I feel like I wish that I had gotten some of this information. I wish someone had handed me a book. I didn't get it. I didn't get that guide. But, you know, we're creating the book, right? We're creating the guides. And you're right. Everyone look and think, what can you do today? It could be as simple as, you know, writing down, I'm going to do something. I'm going to take this issue and make it my own. I'm going to start to have a conversation. I'm going to look at the Gates uh, Foundation information. I'm going to learn about innovation seniors. I'm going to learn about end of life. It doesn't have to be some huge, big, dramatic thing. It can just be one step forward to move the needle because, like I said, we're all going to have to take care of someone. It's just the way the numbers are bearing out. So be prepared. And with the preparation, you'll find that it'll ease your own discomfort around the topic. It'll just kind of put you in the driver's seat. You can be more in charge of your own future and our own future and our collective futures. So. Yeah. You're right. Jennifer's right. Everybody get out there and and do something. And uh, let's not wait around for someone else to to do what we we know we can do ourselves. And we are here with Jennifer Lieberman discussing envisioning the future of elder care and healthy aging. I do want to talk more about your experiences in Africa. I know that you have been working with that country and the needs going on there. And I'd love to hear more about that and what uh, takeaways and any insights that could be applied to this conversation that we're having now about elder care. Yeah, gosh. So fortunately, global food insecurity was actually on the decline. The trend was going in the right direction until about 2016. And unfortunately, with a whole confluence of factors, so climate change, where in Africa, you've had both flood and uh, drought with, with conflict, and particularly with the Ukraine war, which has been such a, a challenge for food supply, particularly in, in Africa, and then COVID and the economics of the, the supply chain and inflation, all of those factors have just come together to create a global hunger crisis. And I think the UN estimates like there are 50 million people that, that are really suffering right now. So I had the opportunity earlier this year to be in Kenya with World Vision, which is an NGO with the UN World Food Program, looking with, with U.S. donors, looking at ways to, to kind of expand the aperture for, for giving and also to look at emergency response and unrestricted gifts that really help organizations when there is a crisis just kind of go in and do what they need to do when a lot of the other funding sources have a lot of restriction. And when there is a crisis and you just need to pivot, how do you access funds to, to really do that? I guess your question is, what, what did I see there that relates to this conversation so much like Kimberly we could we could talk for about a day on this so I, I think overall like really big picture I'm just struck by 
I think the challenges in the developing world are around just food security. And in the U.S., it really is a conversation about nutrition security. It's just, it's, it's in a different place. And I think one could maybe make the assumption that the developed world is in, in a better place. I don't know. I saw a lot of things and experienced a lot of things where I think uh, we have just so much to learn. And I'll give you an example of where I was just absolutely blown away. There's, there's a lot of research that shows that societies with greater gender equity do better economically. They have better outcomes for, for children, better representative government institutions. And so along those lines, a lot of organizations that really understand that the root cause of, of hunger is, is a poverty issue. And, and so a lot of the work is really also around gender equity and, and engaging women in society. And I was in a really remote village and also one where they were extremely affected by climate change and hunger. And I had a conversation with a, a school teacher that I will never forget. Um, this young man, Griffin, was probably 25, and he wanted to talk to me about just how important access to clean water was for him because most of his students were girls. And when they began menstruating, they really needed access to clean water so that they would feel comfortable coming to school. And so what, what just struck me was here is this young man and he's advocating for girls in his community. And when I think about the U.S., we have a lot of conversations about gender equity and the role of women. And from my vantage point, we're having those conversations among a lot of women. And here's a 25-year-old that wants to talk to me about this and had absolutely no squeamishness about talking about these issues. And so that gave me a lot of hope for what is possible. It's, it's a starting point. I think there's a lot of work that, that still needs to be done, but a lot, a lot, a lot to, to learn from, from those experiences. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. This conversation has been amazing and I know it will resonate with a lot of people. It's obviously timed well, seeing that there's a lot of conversations and a lot of movement on this front in, in general. I do want to just pick up on what you were talking about as far as hope. Um, I think hope is obviously important. It's a, a through line for a lot of big change in, in society in general. And in particular, I want to talk to you about this concept of, of wise hope. And uh, if you can expand on what exactly does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think as we tackle and I really saw this, particularly, you know, in the developing world where things at times can feel hopeless. Like it's just such an uphill battle with so many challenges that even here in the U.S., I think it can be at times for people who work in this space feel kind of hopeless. I think we need to, to keep showing up. And to maintain that hope that we can, we can make a difference while at the same time acknowledging how challenging some of these problems are. Food insecurity is, 
is complex. It is not easily solved. So we need to honor the challenge in front of us and yet keep showing up day after day with that North Star in mind that that we're going to solve these issues and to be in fellowship with each other, right? Kimberly, it's for the people that are working in this space to be able to have relationships and call people and celebrate the small things, right? The, the CMS requirement that we at least screen for social determinants of health. We want, of course, the healthcare system to address those. But let's celebrate those victories so that we can, we can keep our energy up as we tackle problems that, that really do need to be solved. Mm-hmm. I agree. And just when I think about my own experiences with my aunt, every day it was like a new day and every step forward was an accomplishment. You know? okay. and every little thing that happened, we acknowledged. And I think I know that that really helped us in navigating her, her journey. Um, just kind of had to dial it all down and say, what is really needed in this moment? Okay, she needs to take her inhaler. Okay, we need to get the oxygen, whatever. Okay, we need to go to the doctor and celebrate. Well, you know what? She was able to walk across the room with the walker today and didn't get as tired as the day before. I mean, there's no, There was no need for a social media post and we didn't have to blog about it. It was just in those moments. Of, this is what we have to do. And I'm here serving that purpose. Didn't always feel good, but it was the right thing to do. It was what was needed. And I couldn't have been more useful for my aunt and my family at that, at that time. And so I agree with you 100%. We have to celebrate all of those. I woke up today. We woke up today. You know, we'd make jokes about it. It's like, how are you doing today? Well, I'm up, I'm here. And that's great. You know? Because otherwise there, there's so much that feels like it's not moving. But when you really think about it, a lot of positive, wonderful things are happening. We have connected over this over this issue. I have met amazing people and have learned so much. So keep going, everybody. Keep showing up. We really need you. And we have been here with Jennifer Lieberman. She's been breaking down so much, so much wisdom and insight that, that she has gained in the healthcare field and from her own personal experiences. We love it. Jennifer Lieberman can be found on LinkedIn. She's a great, great person to connect with. And she's very open, so I uh, recommend you do that. And Jennifer, we're at the the bottom of this conversation. Thank you so, 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 so much for being here. I I really appreciate it. And I have to give a shout out to to Brandon Sass, who was, uh, you know, one of the the driving force of of us connecting. And for people who are watching, please feel free to connect with Jennifer and to uh, explore the various topics that we have talked about. If you're interested in being a guest on our show, you can reach out to us. We'd love to hear more about what people are doing in their communities. You don't have to be a quote unquote expert. Love to hear from average Janes and Joes out there that are dealing with this issue as well. And we are going to close out episode four of Envisioning the Future of Elder Care and Healthy Living. Join us next time for episode five. We'll have another topic and another great guest. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you.